the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. How should Christians fight the culture wars? And then, how are young people feeling about church these days? You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Wednesday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon. Hope you're doing well, Aubrey. It's Wednesday. We're both here. It's, it's beautiful out. It's all of it's this. Beautiful How are you out. It's almost it's, June first. Oh, can you believe it? It's almost Tomorrow. June. Tomorrow. I like. Where did May go? I can't even believe it. In one in one moment, I feel like time is moving so utterly slowly right now. I think mostly because I'm ready for summer and for some vacation, so I'm just like inching towards those. But in other ways, I'm like tomorrow's June. How is that mm-hmm. possible? Time is moving so quickly. But I'm great. I'm great on this Wednesday night. How about you? I'm doing well. It's uh, it, it does feel like slowly we're transitioning into summer. Uh, those kind of activities, those kind of schedules. So, yeah, yeah. I, I love this time of year. Love this time of year. So glad that you're with us today. All right. Our our old friend, Jim Dennison. Jim Dennison. Love that guy. Uh, he if you remember when Jim used to be on the show a bunch, he wrote a book called Respectfully, I Disagree. Right. It was about. How do we as Christians stand up for what we believe in a respectful way? Like, what is that tension? How do we do that? We know there's a lot of people in the church right now who err on both sides. They err on, in order to be respectful, I'm not going to stand up for anything. Yeah. Other people, I'm going to stand up for everything. And in doing so, I'm going to do it in a mean, and I'm not going to care about my witness, if you will. Yeah. Uh, So Jim Dennison asks this question, and I want to wrestle with it. He says, uh, Target loses $10 billion over pride-themed kids' clothing. Should Christians boycott, and he used this in quotes, woke companies, right? Hmm. So let me give you the background again. He said... Target recently lost $10 billion in market valuation over 10 days as its pride-themed clothing line for children provoked a massive uh, backlash. Target's not the only retailer making headlines. Kohl's is now selling pride clothing for three-month-olds. The retailer is also marketing a children's shirt with the word, ask me my pronouns. Critics are now calling for shoppers to boycott the retailer. And so tomorrow being the first day of Pride Month, Jim Dennison asks this question. As Pride Month begins on Thursday, these stories raise an important question. Should Christians boycott? And he again, he's not using he's using this like pejoratively. He's using. Yes. Uh, he said, could, should Christians boycott, quote, woke companies? Aubrey, mm-hmm. I feel like this is an important conversation because it's not going to slow down. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is going to keep going and going and going. Uh, I would normally have you answer and then give you what Jim says. Let me give you what Jim says okay. first. Okay. And then you could wrestle with it. He says, rather than if fighting our opponents as cultural warriors, 
we should love them as cultural missionaries sharing God's word and grace in the place and time he has assigned us to. Hmm. So Jim wants to say... Uh, we need to keep the main thing the main thing, if you will. We need to remember uh, that that we are missionaries into, you know, that we're not just supposed to be warring and warring and warring and warring. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I think it feels like boycotts are only going to increase. Target, Kohl's, the library, whatever else it might be. What do you – how would you uh, tell people to – navigate this time that we're in right now? So I think what's always been difficult for me about boycotts, I I remember, I mean, this was a while ago, let's say 15 years ago, there was some Christians, it was before social media was as prolific as it is now, but there were some Christians on social media saying, we're going to boycott Starbucks because Mm. they had a, I think it was a pro LGBTQ stance. I think that's what it was. And I just remember thinking, okay, like that's a choice you can make, but how far down the road then do you go? Because what if a LGBTQ person makes the car that you drive in, (laughs) helps build the road that you drive on? Like, I feel like the boycott thing begins to go too far at some point. And it's not up to me to determine for other people what that too far line is, but I just I don't know, like soon then you can't even function in the world if you're boycotting everything that disagrees with you. And so I don't necessarily think it's the right move for Christians. Now, I I do understand if it's a a social issue or political issue that you just cannot before God, like wrap your mind around, you don't want to give money to it. I'm not going to push back against you. I just have always had questions about like the lines of boycotting, what we boycott, what we don't. And so I appreciate that Jim Dennison, who I would say is a very conservative, mm-hmm. faithful Christian guy, is saying, look, we're not supposed to be culture warriors doing battle with those whom we disagree. That kind of antagonism hurts those who were called to help and reinforces the narrative of, quote, hate speech so often associated with evangelical biblical morality. So I think what begs the question then is like, OK, so what then do you do if you yeah. are upset by Target, by Kohl's, you feel like the stance they're taking is going after our children, the vulnerable, and you don't want to give support to it, then I don't think you have to go and spend money there. But I wonder if Jim Dennison is saying, but do you also have to like go on social media and rampage against it as a Christian? Or can you, are there ways relationally to to dig in without giving your support financially. I don't know. I mean, does Dennison give any sort of like, here's what you should do. So he tells people, uh, he says this, as Jesus leads us, we are to use our possessions in ways that honor him and support biblical morality. In a democracy, we vote with our ballots in a capitalistic economy. We vote with our dollars. He's Hmm. basically saying this. If you're mad about target, don't shop at target. Yeah. If, and tell, feel free to tell others not to. Like, he's yeah. not against this. If you're mad at Kohl's, if you're mad at Starbucks back in the day, whatever, you know, pick pick the company. Uh, by the way, he quotes the Target CEO who says very blatantly, this is driving sales for us. It's mm. a money thing. Don't. Yeah. Be, so. Right. Right. Don't be fooled. Yeah. Right. They're not going to do stuff. They're they're profiting. Right. Uh, use your money 
in ways that make you feel like you're doing what you should do. Yep. What Jim is then Jim is wanting then to go the next step and go, but what's our posture in doing that? Mm. How do we talk? How do we what do we post? How what are we are are we, do we look any different or do we just look like we're just you know, these culture warriors ready yeah. to burn it down or whatever. Yeah. I think Jim is saying two things. He's saying, use your money in ways that you think respects what you believe. Don't spend them at these places, right? Mm -hmm. But then do that even in respectful ways. Do that in winsome ways. Do that in ways that make people go, man, deep down, I feel like you're anti this, anti this, but I can't argue with the yeah. way you've gone about yeah. it. That's a really difficult one to, to uh, uh, thing to strike. It's also really difficult in the age of social media where the loudest voices get the biggest, right? Like, oh, I'm out here. Look at me. I'm knocking stuff down at Target. That's not what we should be doing. Uh, right. If, so I think it's a both and, Aubrey. I think if you feel strongly about what Target's doing, don't go to Target. Right, right. Don't go shop there. If you feel strongly about what Nike's doing in the way they make their shoes, mm -hmm. don't, don't go to Nike. Right. Don't, don't buy Nike. Nike. All of these yeah. things. You have those choices. And sometimes they're hard. Yeah. Right? Not going to Target might be difficult. But mm -hmm. then don't be one of these people who are like, and I'm going to like basically lose my Christian witness. I'm going to show none of the fruits of the spirit. In then the way I talk about people in this, I, it's a hard balance to strike, though. Yeah, it's, it's a good point when you think about the guy going in and knocking down things, right? Because that's not the way to do it. Just don't go, right? But yep. to go in and cause destruction or to go in and be violent is obviously not the Christian response. And I would say taking clothes off the rack and throwing down is, and then posting on social media is a very violent response to something. And, and there are other ways, I guess, like, can you boycott in a loving way? That's ultimately right. the question. I think the fear for me is not the fear, but the, the question for me is always like, okay, so then are you only going to go to like Christian run grocery stores? Okay. You know, it, it just doesn't always feel realistic to me, but People can push back, certainly, on that. Sure, sure. And I'm not sure that that's the answer in the end. Just go to – but I do think we can't care deeply about everything. But yeah. if, someone, if someone is doing something that runs contrary to something you think is biblical or that you care a lot about, mm -hmm. take your business elsewhere. Yeah, that's good. Uh, You're right. Take that's your good. business elsewhere and, and go about your day. So uh, this is not going anywhere. <laughs> this is. Does it feel like this is ramped up from like 20 miles an hour to like 80 in like the last Certainly. month? in the last year i feel like it has from There's bud no light to it. target mm -hmm. to coles now i yep. don't i i don't know i yep. don't know so hey, you know what's least... funny is my sister was telling me she was at a bar recently with her husband and they were just like giving away the bud lights because they didn't want to sell it they're like here you can just have it because they were trying to get rid of their stock so my and sister and her husband were like great free beer <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I don't even I don't have a problem with boycotts. Just do them with respect. You can boycott with respect and just say, yeah, we're not put, spending our money yeah, here. Yeah. God be with you. That's right? a good that's a good way to do it. Boycott with respect. Boycott with respect. All right. Coming up next uh, over at the religion news service. They wrote an opinion article that is uh, uh, it starts this way. Uh, young people aren't buying far right religious beliefs. That seems like a good thing to me. We're going to unpack it next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. All right, Aubrey, over at the Religion News, they wrote this. Young people aren't buying far-right religious beliefs. Younger Americans aspire to build a world marked by love and justice, but they don't see much of that 
in the church. A lot Mm -hmm. to unpack here. But the first is I would say this. Every young generation seems to have a desire to for love and justice and to do things differently than their parents did. You and I just were that generation. Now we're the generation our kids are pushing against. (laughs) It's not funny. Here we are. That makes us officially old, I think. Exactly. Take think about the hippie movement of the sixties oh, all man. the way up to mm-hmm. whatever else. It's usually this. Um I will tell you that the author of this article is at Union Theological Seminary, which is a very progressive seminary. So take okay. that for however that yep. clouds this. But the premise here is that younger Americans want religion, they want love and justice and everything. But they hate what they see in the church, big C church. We've talked Mm. a lot about this before, um, but what do you think about this premise? Um, Yeah, I mean, I I feel like that's not just young people. I feel like there's a lot of people, even Mm. our generation, that are no longer buying like far right religious beliefs. And I would say that's like a combination. They're they're no longer buying the combination of politics and church, right? Mm. Uh, So... I do think it's worth noting that this guy, like you said, coming from a more progressive institution and probably being in a certain part of the country doesn't necessarily speak for all young people. Like, I'm Mm -hmm. sure some of this is like, where do they live in the country? What church do they attend? So anytime you have kind of a sweeping statement like all young people aren't buying far right religious beliefs is probably not accurate. Mm -hmm. But I would say generally, like in our experience, the people that you know, Kevin and I are coming to get to know more, this would be accurate. But again, I think this is a sweeping thing in the church in general, like people are starting to question the political alignments of the church. And does that need to change? And can we find some Christian messaging that's a little more, a little more about love and justice and a little less about, you know, certain political parties, etc. And I think this is a good thing, Brian, like, no, certainly it can go too far, mm-hmm. but I, I do think we don't want um, far right religious beliefs and we don't want far left religious beliefs. And I'm not saying the answer is somewhere in the middle, but I think the answer is like biblical religious beliefs. Like, let's mm. look at who Jesus was and what Jesus taught and what the early church followed. What did they say the way of Jesus was? And that's where we want to disciple people. And that's what we want to see as all Christians. Yeah. Yeah. Where this article goes wrong. And again, I highlight the fact of the seminary she comes from um, Union Theological. It's very progressive. And so you would read this article and think all younger Christians, I'm using air quotes, um, want unlimited abortion, want, Mm. you know, have very progressive views on sexuality, Mm. all of this stuff. Uh, I don't think that's true. I think there are many younger Christians still with orthodox or more conservative views. Yeah, absolutely. So understanding that I do, I read stuff like this and it just does make me sad uh, how much, and a lot of it's our own fault, I suppose, how much of the church is now linked synonymously with not just Republican beliefs, but far right Republican beliefs, yep. like yep. far right political beliefs or farther right political beliefs have really let's give them credit. They've done a really good job at like co-opting the, the church and the evangelical, evangelical Christians. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I think that's what we want to push back against. Like, I, I think this article goes too far, but I do believe 
that this author is right in the sense that especially younger generations are going, I don't like that politician. I don't want to vote for those policies. I don't believe those things, but I do believe in Jesus. But in order to believe in Jesus and be part of the church, do I have to believe those things? Right. Right. Mesh the two so much that um, we've mi- we've majored on the minors so much that I do think there's confusion in our generation, the generations behind us going, do I have to sign up for those four things in order to be part of the church? And we want to scream no. Yep. But I think the overarching message uh, that they're getting is yes. Yeah, I think you're right. And I, what I would say is interesting is – this is purely anecdotal from my experience is it does seem like the older generation has the older evangelical uh, generation has been co-opted by the far right leanings, meaning if you're a Christian, you believe X, Y, Z politically. And I, I am grateful to see that's changing, but it does beg the question, like what man, like, as church leaders, did we miss discipleship? Were we discipling people towards a political party and not towards Jesus? And then now with the younger generation, like, how do we kind of, okay, like, this is such a good swing, but is it going to go too far? And how, I don't know. It's so, it's so complicated to think through the reality of what you said, which is that the far right has done a very, very good job of mixing faith, evangelical Christian faith and politics. Mm. And I know that was very intentional to get the vote. And it's like, we let that happen. And there are certain things uh, that, I don't know. Anyway, I could talk about this forever, but I, it feels like a continuation of having to sort of untangle, dismantle our being passionate about politics, but remembering that we belong to the kingdom of Jesus and how do we get that balance right? Standing up for what we believe, voting the way we think we ought to, but not letting that become our idolatry or our God just feels like a conversation, especially with this election coming. We're going to have to keep talking about again and again and again and again. Yeah. Again, I go back to the we've we've added so much to what it means to be a Christian That's in our it. culture Yeah, uh, that we've decided that you can't disagree on any of this, Mm. uh, whether it be issues of whatever Mm -hmm. and still be under the umbrella of Christian. Like we still can't worship together or we can't. And I do think that with each generation behind us, the church loses credibility when Mm. it is seen as being in bed with a specific political party, a specific candidate in that political party, a specific culture war view, whether they believe it or not, whatever else it might be. Anytime it seems to be, uh, to have seemed co-opted by somebody other than Jesus. Yeah. uh, I think the church loses credibility and that's where, what I think we're seeing in these statistics. And, uh, that's a real wake up call because I know a ton of pastors who don't want this. Totally. The question is, the question is, how do we turn the tide of mm-hmm. that? Not in the media, not in the whatever, but with our younger generations. What are yeah. the conversations we need to have, uh, and to so that the main thing becomes the main thing? Well, coming up next, 
want to dive into one of the most beautiful parables that Jesus told in Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son. I was reading over at the Gospel Coalition, and they said, what's the real turning point in the prodigal son story? I think you're going to find this beautiful next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Aubrey, how many times in your life do you think you've preached, you've taught, you've uh, written about the story of the prodigal son? Mm, I love that story. I I probably haven't written much about it because I feel like once Tim Keller covers the prodigal son and calls it the prodigal God, you're like, done. I have nothing to add here. But I I would say I've preached on it a few times in in my preaching career. What about you? I feel like a lot. Like, I feel like if, whether it's not the point of the whole sermon, so often near the end of the sermon, it, you'll find yourself being like, it's going like back to the, the it's like the prodigal, the prodigal son. son. Yeah. It's like in the prodigal son. <laughs> right, story. right, right. Uh, it, it is, uh, it's just such a fascinating story because it speaks to, um, well, it speaks to a lot of things. The one part, the uncomfortable part of the story that I'll never forget learning when I was at Wheaton in a Bible class when a prof was like, the main part of this story is about the older son, not the younger son. And mm. I was like, what? What? I'll, never forget, I'll never forget that prof going. Right. And nope. I think part of it is we, the story so ubiquitous that we forget. It's actually like a nonfiction story that Jesus told. It's a parable, right? So nope. people think it actually happened. And so then you can forget, wait, wait, no, there's an audience Jesus was talking to. It was an audience of older brothers. So the yes. point is to the older brothers, you need to hear this message of the kingdom of God and who God welcomes. Yeah, that's right. Cause we all like to say we're the prodigal son. We right. run away. And right. that's part of, that's a, that's a message here. It yeah. truly is. Yeah. Uh, but man, when I was in that Wheaton class, I remember the prof being like, uh, it, I'd never heard it. The number of mm. times I'd heard that story preached, I'd never heard anyone say the following, uh, at the end of the story, the only one outside the party is the oldest son. Is the older son. It's and I'm so going to be like, oh, I hate that. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And then you're like, oh, wait, am I the older son? And the prof was like, he might have joined the party. Mm-hmm. He might have come in. Like, mm-hmm. we don't know that he, like, you know, left or whatever. Right. But anyway. He had um, a choice. Do I come in or not? <laughs> that's right. That's right. But over at the Gospel Coalition, they asked this. Uh, what Basically, they asked, what's the real turning point? In the prodigal son story. And a lot of times when when considering the youngest son, we preach it. I've preached this a million times this way. The turning point is the younger son is lying with the pigs, mm. wishing that he had what the pigs had. Mm. Uh, and then he starts going, if only my if only I could be a servant in my father's mm. house. And it is in that moment that the story turns when he makes the decision. Yeah, he's kind of hit rock bottom and decided like enough is enough here. I'm going back. I'm heading back from my father's house. Uh, They say, and I love this, that the real turning point in this story is when the younger son returns to the home and it all hinges on the father's reaction And so therefore, the turning point in the story is when the father hugs the son Mm. and reinstates him as son. He's basically like, you're not going to come back as a servant. You're coming back as a son, Mm. fully restores him and shows him grace and welcomes him back. I love that. I think he's right. I think the author of this is right, that the crux of this story is in the action of the father when the son returns more so than when the son decides to return. What do you think about that? Yeah, when we when you and I covered some of the um, 
Tim Keller quotes last week. One of the I was trying to find it in my phone because I snapped a picture of it. I can't find it right now. But one of the quotes was like, really, like, uh, it's not about our faithfulness, but about God's. Yeah. You know, Tim Keller, of course, said it way more eloquently and beautifully than that. But it's not how strong our faith is, but the fact that he looks towards us, that kind of thing. And I think this is the same idea that the, yes, I do think that there was in the story that Jesus told, there certainly was a moment of conviction yes, and a moment of realization and a moment of like, something has to change here for the, the younger son, but where the transformation takes place is certainly in the arms of the father. Right. Yeah. And I, yeah. and I do think this article over at the gospel coalition by Gre- Glenn Shivner, he does, this is really beautiful. The real change in the prodigal, both his stat, his change of status and of heart happens in the arms of the father. That's mm-hmm. where repentance occurs. And he talks about how, you know, he smelled of a, stinky pigsty but he's in his father's arms and i think that's, that's right. a beautiful example of the gospel it is he says this the uh the real change in the prodigal both his change of status and of heart like you said happens in the father's arms imagine yourself in those arms you may have been sorry before but now you loathe yourself because you but you can't escape his love mm. uh, you had composed a repentance speech now your awareness of sin overwhelms but you're enfolded in grace mm. true repentance occurs in the father's embrace and this is where our ongoing repentance happens like it's mm. all about the acceptance of the father mm. it's all about what did uh, and obviously in the parable, that is our heavenly father. Yeah. But what does the father do when his son, we've all preached this where the son goes back. The father could have told him you're, uh, you're dead to me. Get out of here. Yep. Or the father could have had him killed. He could have yep. done any of that stuff. Yeah. But instead he does something that's scandalous in that society. He gets on his hand, he gets on his knees and he hugs his mm. son is such a wonderful picture of God's grace. And I think uh, the gospel, the, the author's point here is like, we can lose sight of that grace when we totally. lose sight of the fact that the father didn't have to hug him, yeah. didn't have to restore yeah. him, didn't have to, but did willingly and lovingly. And that's ultimately the grace that we hold on to. Well, and I also think it's so easy to become like the older brother and think that the yes. the acceptance of the father is based on our obedience or disobedience. I mean, I can get that way. I can be like, oh, I'm not doing a good job. God's probably disappointed in me. Shame. You know, he's ashamed of me. I'm not as I don't feel as close to him because I'm not being as obedient. And your whole like relationship with God can suddenly be defined by you, your mm. obedience, your disobedience, your yes. faith, your lack of faith, your and like it, the gospel message again and again and again and again reminds us like it is not about our anything. It's about what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And that's why we experience the father's grace and the father's love and the father's arms around us. And so it is, I mean, I think this, what makes this such a powerful parable is, is because we're we can be one or the other, right? So many of us who grew up in church can become like the big brother if we're not careful mm. and assume that it's all about like how good we are That's right. or how not good we are, right? And then right. others of us can become like the the younger brother, just, you know, people who never knew Christ or never walked in God's love, but um, have one of those like powerful transformation stories. I th- we can all find ourselves in the story. I think that's the point. Yep, and we yep. can all find ourselves 
being embraced by the father if we'll draw near. And I do that's think right. that's why it, it sort of ends with the older brother, like not drawing near. And what's he going to do? He's faced with the choice just as mm. we're faced with the choice. What are we going to do? That's right. Listen how it ends. How do we preach to prodigals? Certainly they must repent. Sinners need a whole new life. The old one stinks. But where will they find this new life? Not in their resolve, only in the father's arms. That's so good. The gospel is not a pigsty telling rebels how to make restitution. It's the announcement of uh, one who welcomes sinners and eats with them. He is Mm -hmm. our focus. And then they go, so how do we preach to ourselves? (sighs) As Christians, we might imagine that we yo-yo in and out of the father's house according to our performance. But that's Mm -hmm. a lie. When we sin, we are not alone in the sty. We are there in his arms, reeking and held fast. It's a thousand times worse, but a million times better. Wow. Oh, that's really well written. Wow. So good. Beautiful. Coming up next, I want to play to you, for you, some words from Pastor Paul David Tripp about the book of Psalms. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Uh, Aubrey, let's talk. You're the lament person. Do you like yep. being the lament person? I love being the lament person, but I will say there's a lot more people writing about lament now. And I'm like, hello, remember you me? Don't know. <laughs> don't you take that as like you, you blazed a trail into Christian death? That's or... a positive. That's a positive way to spin it. Yes, that's what I do. I take it. I take it like that. No, I, I am the lament person. I definitely there have been times and you'll see it on my social media where I lean into a little bit more than others because I personally need a break. But I really enjoy helping equip Christians to understand that lament can be an active, meaningful part of our faith journey. I think for so long, we've kind of said, oh, no, we don't want to go there. Nope. God doesn't want our pain and our sorrow when instead God God invites us to share the full spectrum of our emotions with him. And that's part of a increasingly intimate relationship with God. So I like talking about that quite a bit. Why do you think there is a resurgence? I think COVID, honestly, I, Mm. so in COVID, I had a lot of church leaders reaching out to me doing Bible studies on the louder song and wanting me to come speak on lament. And I think part of it is like, we didn't know everyone has been through pain throughout history. That's not new, but I think collectively, especially in the West United States of America, besides nine 11, We hadn't really had this sort of modern shared experience of pain and suffering and what is happening. And people are asking questions and what do we do with this? And all of a sudden, there's also like major racism happening with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And it's the same time people are dying. And then there's anti-Asian hate. And like, I mean, so much just all the tipping points came to the surface at the same time. And so I think people really began to explore like, oh, there's this other part of our faith we've been ignoring, which is vocalizing our communal pain and suffering, our collective mm. heartache. And actually that's faithful and biblical. I think we're just, we're Americans, right? So we focus on like the victory story and we focus on the mountaintop and we don't love to dwell in the valley a lot as Americans, but I think it's it, it's a historic, orthodox, very valuable part of our faith Agreed. to do so. So one of the places that in the Bible, obviously Lamentations comes to mind. Yep. Uh, but another th- place that comes to mind is the Psalms. Mm-hmm. It's just the book of Psalms and uh, David crying out over and over again. And with that in mind, I was listening to Paul David Tripp was kind of introducing the book of Psalms. He's doing some stuff in the book of Psalms. And he says, 
He uh, he thinks that the book of Psalms was written. One of the reasons it was written was to keep us honest about our own struggles, to hmm. give us opportunities to see David of all people going, where are you, God? Yeah. I, yeah. I don't see where you're at work. Why are you asleep? Why are you letting this happen? Why does yeah. evil win? Yeah. Why does all this? And And I think when we see the book of Psalms that way of like, I always learned from an early age, the book of Psalms in some ways is David's prayer journal, right? And so um, this idea of being honest about our faith and being honest and asking the hard questions, I guess you touched on it before, but a lot of us have grown up feeling guilty about doing that. Like we're, we don't feel the license to do that. Yeah. But, but why do you think – maybe why do you think that is, but more so, why do you think it's important that we ask those questions? So I I like to compare this to – um, well, I'd like to start with this. Jesus asked those questions. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so if the Son of God is asking that question, let's assume those of us who are imperfect and sinful are invited to ask those questions. Mm -hmm. But I also think like, you have to think of it like a marriage. Oftentimes our relationship with God is defined biblically as a marriage metaphor. If I were to tell you that Kevin and I have been married for 22 years and in those 22 years, we've never had a conflict. We've never asked mm -hmm, each other mm -hmm. difficult questions. It has been butterflies and rainbows and cupcakes and unicorns for 22 years. You would think a she's a liar or B, that's a very shallow relationship. They don't know each other well. They don't have intimacy. They haven't been through it and chosen right. love. And so I think it's preposterous to assume that the God of the universe who wants all of us, wants our whole hearts, only wants our praise and our adulation. Like that's not an intimate relationship. And we know that. So we have a God who not only gives us permission, but gives us language scripturally. The Psalms is a great example of how we can come to God with these questions, because when we're going through the heartache, we will run to something and God would rather us run to him with our pain and our questions and our doubts than walk away from him. And again, all of that is part of a deepening marriage with our heavenly father. That's right. That's right. That's well put. I was so excited to hear what you had to say about this that I forgot to play the, play the sound. In the oh, we should listen to it. Paul David Tripp. He's an author. He's a pastor and just uh, doing some great work in the book of Psalms. Listen to how he introduces it. Well, as we're introducing the Psalms, trying to wrap our brains around this amazing part of the word of God. There's a third thing that I think is important to observe and to talk about, that the Psalms, in a way, are the Bible's clearest, uh, most extensive portrait of the struggle of faith. I am deeply persuaded that the Psalms are in the Bible to keep us honest about our own struggle of faith in this fallen world. The Psalms picture our doubt, our confusion, our wonderment, our feelings at moments that were under attack, our wonderment about why it doesn't seem like the good guys are winning, our questions 
to God. Is God there? Does he hear? Will he ever do what he's promised? A great example of the... And so, I just think we need to, as all of us go, life is hard at times. Mm -hmm. Faith is confusing. Mm -hmm. There are times it got, yes, we know the victory that's coming and it's already now, but it will be fully realized in the future. But like David, like the prophets, like so many people throughout scripture, we are called to say, God, I don't know what's going on. I'm struggling. Where are you? And it's in those moments that we meet God. Yeah, exactly. I actually just am writing something for my website, and this is not a self-promotion, but five questions to ask God when you wonder if God is there. And I, I think the, it, you remember when your teacher would be like, when you're writing a story or reading a story, you look for the who, what, when, where, why. I think we can ask God those same questions. God, like, why are you allowing this to happen? God, who's going to show up and help me? God, when will this get better? God, what in the world are you doing? David's not a W question, but asks, how long, oh Lord? Mm-hmm. That's how lamentations mm-hmm. begin. How how lonely lies the city? How like a widow she is. In fact, the book of lamentations in Hebrew is actually uh, Icha, the word how, how. And I think that's how we begin our limits is by asking God those how questions, those why questions, those when questions. And look, God is God. And so God has the right, we know this from the book of Job, to answer or not answer our questions the way that God wants to. But I promise you, God will answer your questions with his tenderness, with his presence, with his power. Maybe not with perfectly little wrapped up, you know, packages that are easy, but you will find a greater mystery and a greater sense of God's goodness on the other side of those questions. But you have to be willing to ask them. That's right. So uh, good words from Paul David Tripp. Mm -hmm. Questions we all ask ourselves, right? Difficult questions, but important ones. Hey, we'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.